welcome to Citizen Science, stories of science we can do together, coming to you from the palatial SciStarter Virtual World Headquarters. If you think there ain't no cure for the summertime blues, then you ain't seen SciStarter. And you especially ain't seen the three projects we're featuring in this episode that will have you seeing ants, spiderwebs, and sidewalks in a whole new light. Well, it's nearly summer, and SciStarter's virtual world headquarters is filled with the sounds of singing birds, croaking frogs, calling flamingos, excited chimps, battling spaceships, and exploding washing machines. But while we're cataloging our sound effects library, you might be looking for fun summer projects. If so, you've come to the right place. Let's start with planning the perfect picnic and preventing picnic pitfalls. For example, has this ever happened to you? You put together fantastic picnic foods. It's a beautiful day. You find a lovely picnic spot and lay out your food, and then what happens? No ants come. So you're stuck there eating all by yourself, bored and lonely. To make sure this never happens to you again, we have with us myrmecologist, that means ant expert, Magdalena Sorger, founder of discoverants.com and project leader for the Citizen Science Project Ant Picnic. Hi, Dr. Sorger. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So, uh, you know, most people, when they are preparing a picnic, want to do their best to minimize the number of ants that are going to visit. So why are you having people create a picnic that attracts ants? Well, it all started basically from a real picnic, because maybe you have noticed when you go out to have a picnic that ants don't come to every food equally. So they prefer some foods and they're not really interested in other foods. And so we noticed that as well. And so we kind of wanted to make an experiment out of it, as scientists do. Uh, and so that's why we created a picnic to give ants choices specifically to see like where they would go or what they would choose. Uh-huh. And how have, have you become so interested in ants and their eating habits? Well, I guess... For me personally, the question would be more, why have you become interested in ants? Because I'm pretty much interested in everything about ants. <laughs> so okay. also their eating habits, I guess. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, no, ants are my thing, my passion, my love. And I want to just learn more about ants and I want to learn the stories that they have to tell us. Yeah, and I think people perhaps underestimate ants. I think they see there's, oh, there's like, there's big ones that want to eat my house, and there's little ones that want to eat my picnic. And, some, uh, and when it rains, I get these little tiny ones. And so there's like, you know, a couple of kinds of ants. But I mean, ants are like really important. Ants are, first of all, you bring up a great point because most people are aware of a few kinds of ants or species of ants, as uh, properly said. Um, but there's a huge diversity of ants. Most people are aware of red ants and black ants, fire ants, depending on where you are mm, in the world. Yeah. Um, but yes, some people carpenter ants if they end up eating your house and they start <laughs> to know them very well really quickly. But yeah, but there's so many other ones. I mean, there's every shape and color and weird structure. And so there's so much to know about ants and so many stories 
to know. And so ant picnic is also a really great way to attract some of these ants that are maybe in your surroundings. So by participating in this project and helping us get an answer to this research question, you also get to just see the ants that are around the area where you set up your picnic. Huh. And okay, so how do we participate? Yeah, so it's actually pretty easy. So you just need to prepare the baits. Um, so there's six different types of baits. Um, there's um, water. So water's really easy. <laughs> there's water, there's olive oil, there's uh, sugar, there's amino acids. So basically just protein, there's salt, and there's a cookie. So for the first five baits, you need to like make a solution and you will just use a little cotton ball and dip it in the solution. The cookie is easier. You just need to crumble it up and set it up. Where do you find amino acids? Um, actually in, what are they called, like nutrition stores or something like that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Anybody who has really big muscles and is really interested in working out knows where to find amino acids. And any particular kind of amino acid? Yeah, it's, it's L-glutamine powder. Pure L-glutamine powder, no um, flavor or anything. You can also order it online, so it's readily available almost anywhere. Okay. So, so you get this stuff and there's, I guess, six different things to try. And then what do you do? Okay. So, so you set up all your baits and then you take little like cards. You can just take, um, yeah, paper cards. Um, you label them with each of your bait and then you basically lay them out in a circle or a little grouping. And then you set on each card, the bait type that you have. So your little cotton ball or your cookies, you crumble it on there and then you leave it out there for one hour. And that is basically, so of course, before that, you have to record some data for us. So there's a data sheet and everything and then afterwards. But basically setting up this, 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 these six bait stations, that's what you need to do and wait an hour. Okay. And then what do you do after an hour? You, you... First of all, you will walk up to your, to your bait stations. You will watch how many ants are on each bait and you will record that number. This is because sometimes you may just have like one ant at a bait and a bigger ant and the moment you come closer, she'll be gone. So you, mm. we just want to like get that number as well. So then you walk a little bit closer, you take a picture of your whole experiment. And then you can collect your experiment. You will just take each of the cards, put each card into one plastic bag, one Ziploc bag, uh, zip it and take it home take it indoors somewhere or in some like space where you can set it up. And then your job is to count the ants that are in each of the bags. I see. So the ants, the ants actually are trapped. Um, yes. It, again, in theory, you could just, you know, like count them, you know, as you're there, but you have to imagine again, if you've ever like dropped the cookie or something, it will be swarmed with ants. So there's a chance you will have a lot of ants on there for certain baits. When you put them on the paper, it soaks through. So sometimes ants are underneath the card. Mm. And so when you pick it up, you put it in the Ziploc bag, then afterwards you can really examine it and see how many ants you really have. I see. And um, so are you learning things from this? Now, do they send this data to you? 
Yes. So um, the data is collected in a huge database that I have access to. Uh, and basically, at this point, the experiment is just collecting data. So this is set up to be a large scale data set from collecting data from all over the world. So I am right now in Austria. So I'm starting this experiment in Austria as well. Um, we've been doing it in different locations in the world. And so the idea is to really create a huge data set where we can learn something about the different preferences at different times of the year and in different locations. Oh, okay. Wow. And um, are you, I, I guess you answered this question, but you're looking for more players, right? It's not like you're already inundated with as much data as you need. Absolutely. And for this experiment, I mean, it is great, you know, to do at home, to do with the family or whatever, but it's also fantastic to do in schools. So if you do this in schools, if you do this with teachers, you already have a whole class, you have the option to work with the data you collected. So you can work with the math teacher or like do this in the math class. Um, so that there's not abstract numbers that you're working with, but you're working with the numbers that you actually collected yourself, um, which I think in a school in a school setting is a great opportunity um, to get some context for the data that you're working with, or like for data in general. Hmm. Great. All right. Well, is there anything else uh, that you want people to know about this, or answers to questions that I haven't asked? Um. Well, I mean, I guess when you do ant picnic, there's a lot of opportunity to do um, additional things. And so uh, since ants are what I love and what I'm super interested in, I always thought about um, how to bring the subject of ants closer to people. And so ant picnic is a great starting point, but maybe it gets you more interested in ants. Um, and maybe you're interested in identifying the ants that you've just collected. So in that case, for instance, there is an ant identification key that you can access. Um, there is a little, um, a little thing that I developed that's called um, find your spirit ant or which ant is exactly like you. And so it takes you through 15 common ant species and kind of describes them in a way that is relatable to us humans a little bit, but it's still correct i mean the ants really do those yeah. things like some are active in the morning and some are not and and some like music and others don't <laughs> so so there's just there's, there's a lot of resources around this and so we also created a teacher guide. Uh, so there's a teacher guidebook with a lot of resources that I would really um, love if a lot of teachers would use. The teacher guide is available through the SciStarter and Picnic website if you go to um, the Students Discover website that is linked on SciStarter. So you will, you will navigate your way to the teacher guide. What? So wait, so ants so like music? Yes, there is musical ants. So there's carpenter ants that drum. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> I, I kind of, I call my carpenter ants the hipster ant. They like plant <laughs> juice. Yeah, and they also wear funny hairstyles. Really? There's carpenter oh, ants wow. that have mohawks. <laughs> Great. Now, will people be able to find that out at your website? <laughs> yes. So, so the stuff that I've created and the stuff that I do is available on discoverants.com. And you can also follow me on social media and it's all discoverants. Great. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Definitely. This was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. 
Well, if you're anything like me, there's nothing you enjoy more than going into Google Maps, finding a random city, selecting Street View, and just strolling around aimlessly, seeing the sights. What you may not realize is that you can do that and contribute in a meaningful way to important citizen science that will help make the world a better place. John Froelich is Associate Professor in Human-Computer Interaction at the University of Washington Paul G. Allen School of Computer Science and Engineering and also created and runs Project Sidewalk. Hi, John. Thanks for being with us. Oh, it's such a great pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so sidewalks, that's a, it doesn't sound like that interesting a topic. It, yeah. You might say it sounds rather pedestrian. Ah. Um, yeah, I know you haven't heard that before. No, I actually um, haven't. So That's why great. Are, <laughs> why, why are you interested in sidewalks? I would say, you know, while from a distance, maybe sidewalks aren't that interesting, they're actually the lifeblood of cities. They connect mm -hmm. us to each other. They connect us to transit. They connect us to businesses. And interestingly, they fundamentally intersect many of great societal interests from, you know, environmental sustainability and, and for sustainable transit uh, all the way to equity. And, and what does it mean to design an equitable city that allows us to move about the world in a free way? And, and so there's, there's human rights, there's local commerce and recreation. Think of all the ways in which sidewalk sort of supports the vibrancy of a city. So that's, that's sort of yeah. what attracts me to it. Yeah, and I guess if you don't have to think about it, then you're very lucky because yeah. it's working well. But for a lot of people, I guess it can be a barrier. It can, it can, you know, you're pushing something, and all of a sudden, oh my gosh, I can't get this where it needs to go. And yeah. that's a rare thing for me, but probably not a rare thing for for others. Right. I mean. For people who are in wheelchairs, fundamentally, uh, yeah. they have to navigate barriers constantly. But I think we can all think of circumstances in which we are pulling luggage or we're on a bike or perhaps we're pushing a stroller and we've been impacted by poorly designed sidewalks. So there mm -hmm. are two real things that go on here. One is people design sidewalks to be impassable. And that's just a fundamental design issue. And that's really a responsibility of urban designers and planners and things. But we, you know, in historical issues, like we design sidewalks without curb ramps or curb cuts. Yeah. Those are the things that happen at the intersections that allow us to freely move, you know, on our bikes, luggage, wheelchairs, and so on. So there are design issues, but then there are also maintenance issues, right? As weather and other things degrade our sidewalks over time and make them impassable. So those are the mm -hmm. two things that can really, really affect us and affect travel, as I said, and, and human mobility. Okay, and then how does Project Sidewalk figure in this? Ah, uh, yes. Well, it turns out, like many things, we need data. We need good data to make data-driven decisions, to have analytics about where sidewalks exist, but not just what's called sidewalk networks, you know, sort of node networks of where sidewalks are in cities. And that's how like tools like uh, Google Maps will work with roads. They route you by creating a graph data structure and figuring out the easiest way or the fastest way to get your car from A to B. But we don't really have those sorts of tools for sidewalks um, and for pedestrians. And that's because we don't have good data on sidewalk networks. We don't know how sidewalks are connected, where there are crosswalks, where there are pedestrian signals and things like that. 
The other thing, so that's sidewalk networks. That's where sidewalks exist. The other thing we don't have information on is the condition of those sidewalks. How good are they? How wide are they? What kind of barriers might exist, right? And so those are the two things, the location of sidewalks and the condition of sidewalks that are essential to improving how we can analyze cities and create tools that allow us to uh, you know, prioritize mobility that are that's non-motorized. So that's what uh -huh. Project Sidewalk does. It's fundamentally about data collection. And we kind of had this observation 10 years ago now, wow, there's this growing set of streetscape imagery, panoramic imagery in, in a tool called Google Street View that we could use to analyze urban geography in new sorts of ways. We could also pair that perhaps with satellite imagery and other sort of traditional means of looking at the world. But we've primarily been using streetscape imagery. It's called panoramic imagery. If you've used Google Street View, You've seen it. And we, we've built a tool that allows people to virtually immerse themselves. So sort of go into a city and evaluate sidewalks by kind of, you know, it's almost like a first person video game. If you've ever played those kinds of games, we give you missions. We tell you exactly kind of how to assess sidewalks. And then there's various kinds of tools where you can rate the severity of sidewalk barriers. You can find them. Um, you can validate other people's labels. There's leaderboards. There's badges. You know, it's, it's actually a pretty fun thing to do. But then we use that data and we, we work with our partners to figure out, well, what is the condition of sidewalks like in these neighborhoods and how do they compare to other neighborhoods? And maybe what are some correlations to the socioeconomics of these various neighborhoods? Are there areas that haven't changed very much over time to help improve human mobility? So those are the sorts of things that, that Project Sidewalk supports. Huh. Okay. So how do I get started? Do I do it through Google Street Map or do I do it through your website app or how, how is it? Yeah. Great question. So yeah, you would go to projectsidewalk.org and we're in 10 cities right now. So we work with community advocates, um, either walkability advocates or disability advocates, as well as local governments. And basically you go to projectsidewalk.org. You can click on start exploring. And the first mission is actually an interactive tutorial. So like if you've ever downloaded an app on your phone, you know, these days we don't read manuals. The, mm -hmm. the apps try to sort of train you into the app as you're using it. And we do the same thing with Project Sidewalk. So we, you will train you both on how to use the tool as well as how to assess the built environment for accessibility. Huh. Okay. And uh, so how long has this been going on? Do you already have results or is it just starting? Yeah, great question. So we kind of started with an NSF grant and an uh, Google Faculty Research Award back in 2012, actually, if you can believe it. Oh, wow. So I guess this is our 10th oh, yes. year. And we've kind of grown organically since then. We um, are now in 10 cities, as I mentioned. Uh, we've had maybe 12,000 users. We have over 750,000 geolocated labels on sidewalks. Wow. Um, it's the biggest data set that we're aware of on sidewalk condition estimates across, across uh, three different countries. We've mm -hmm. been working with partners in Mexico recently and, and looking at uh, kind of culturally and geographically how these sidewalks differ from U.S. cities. And we've been working with partners in the city of Amsterdam, so directly partnering with the city government there. Amsterdam is a, a tremendously sort of walkable and bikeable city, but it turns out it has a lot of cobblestones. It has some areas that lack curb ramps that actually affect people with different kinds of mobility levels, so people in wheelchairs or walkers or other things. Mm -hmm. So this is used, it's really two parts, right? It's so cities can use it to do planning to do to fig, figure out what needs fixing or improvements and then uh, you have research goals too right where you're looking at trying to answer different questions what what's that like 
Yeah, exactly. So, and you know, it kind of depends on the needs of, of our, our communities, and, and uh, we're you know, sort of fundamentally driven by those questions. But I'd mm-hmm. say there's kind of two parts to the research. One is on the urban design side, like where are sidewalks and how are they changing and how are they not? And that's sort of a, a sociological question as well as an urban design one. Uh, but I'm actually a computer scientist. And so I'm also interested in, in ways of combining crowdsourcing. This is called crowdsourcing, where you use users to kind of come in while well, your podcast is well aware of this sort of in a citizen science yeah. way, right, to allow people yeah. who might have minimal training in a domain to actually give you usable information. But then our back end is also your, your labels, your work is being used to train a machine learning model. And that's really where we get scale. Now, of course, machine learning is imperfect. So we need lots of training data. Uh, and now, like I said, we have 750,000 labels. So we're using mm. that in our back end to train our machine learning model so we can do semi-automatic assessments of the built oh. environment for accessibility. Huh. Okay, so now this has been going on for 10 years. You've got a lot of data. Uh, Where is it going? Do you need lots more... Um, citizen scientists to join, or are you already oh, drowning yes. in data? No, no, no. We need more. We need more. We could never get enough data. No. Really, yeah. our vision is, look, we have to prioritize sidewalks in the same way that we have streets. Why can't we open up Google Maps and see lots of information about the routability of, of pedestrian pathways that gives me information on accessibility barriers, and, and I can maybe even input my mobility level or that I'm a wheelchair user and get an adequate route. We you know, sort mm-hmm. of demand this. And and we need good data for that. So I think we're not done until we've developed ways of analyzing all the sidewalks in the world. So I would say we need another 10 years for that at least. Okay. All right. Well, good. Is there anything else that, that we haven't covered that you want to um, make sure that we share? Well, I would encourage folks, if, if you're interested in sidewalks and, and human mobility, human rights, to check out our website, projectsidewalk.org, or you could check us out on, on Twitter as well. And we, we provide information resources there. And we're always looking for new cities and new partners. So please do reach out. Great. All right. Well, thanks so much. Thank you, Bob, for having us. Finally today, a citizen science project so clever it should win some sort of citizen science Nobel Prize or or something. It's called Spidey Sensor, and it's a project in which you buddy up with local spiders to track air pollution. Chris Hahn is Director of Research and Education at the North Carolina Environmental Justice Network and created Spidey Sensor while an assistant professor at UMBC, the University of Maryland Baltimore campus. Hey Chris, thanks for joining us. Hi, how are you doing? Good. So could you tell us, I, I, this sounds like a really, really cool project. Um, and as I understand it, people are collecting spider webs and sending them to you. Why, um, why are they doing that? And why do you want them? <laughs> <laughs> because I love them. Uh, <laughs> One more spider webs. Um, who couldn't use more spider webs? Uh, mm-hmm. No, I, I could use more spider webs specifically because I actually use them as a metric to measure air contamination. And <sighs> how that works is that um, there are some spider webs that you may have noticed that are very good at collecting dust. They sit um, untouched in corners out in the world and they collect dust and that dust will have particles of air contaminants that we can actually measure in the lab. And specifically, we can look at metal contamination. Oh, okay. And, and can, do, do you want people to collect any old kind of spider webs or are there specific ones that you're looking for? It's not any old web. Um, it's a funnel weaver spider web, which is in the family Agelinidae. 
And they are a harmless spider that builds a funnel web. So it, it has a horizontal coarse web that looks like a little um, like flat blanket. And it has a little funnel at the end of it. And it has behavior very similar to a hermit crab. They hide in their little funnel, their little hidey hole, and really um, only come out um, when there's an insect that is putting in specific vibrations on their their web. So they're effectively using a non-sticky web really just to sense movement. And so really they use that web to sense the entire world around them. Uh, oh, and but so the, it's not sticky? It's not sticky, no. Um, they're just... Um, really relying on their own speed. Oh, so something just happens to land on it. It can get away, but the spider's so fast, it gets it before it, it leaves. That's right. And they're really good at it. So, you know, placement is really key on where they're putting that web. So that they're getting some traffic. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, there's a, a genus of that spider that is called grass spiders because they will often build these webs across grass. So they're getting things that are just walking along the grass um, oh. and can, can go and just like, Ch but they're also very versatile, even within like grass spiders, they build them on the side of buildings. They're really incredible architects because how they envision the 3d space of a funnel, they really will put that anywhere to make this, you know, pretty similar structure so that it makes it um, easily identifiable. Like, you know, that's a funnel weaver web. Um, but they can imagine that like in a chain link fence huh. on a railing on grass. And so they're making the same sort of structure using a lot of different substrate. I've seen that kind of web on our, um, if we don't clean them, on our outdoor windowsills sometimes. Um, yeah. I don't know if they're absolutely. the exact same, but, but the same type of web with a hole kind of. It probably is. It, it most likely is. That's a common space that I've seen them too. Okay. Yeah, because of the way that they build their web um, and because they don't really move after they build a single web, you will see them um, just parked in a single location um, that, huh. that ends up just being like pretty good to find traffic yeah. for stuff. So in a windowsill where a moth gets trapped because they're attracted to the light mm -hmm. at night. Yeah. So that's, there are spots where you'll see them set up. Wow. Okay. So how do I get involved with this? I know it must require a little bit of training or education so people don't send you the wrong thing. And how do listeners uh, do this? Yeah. So through our website, spideysensor.org, um, people can go through a 10-minute training where I actually break down uh, different types of webs and how to identify them. Mm -hmm. And so, and then take a quiz to make sure that you can um, accurately identify at least pictures of webs. Um, and then I, I send you off into the world to collect webs <laughs> on your own. Huh. Um, and actually the first step that we do is to clear a web. And so to not actually send in the spider web that you first see, um, but to actually allow the spider to rebuild a web um, because we want to have a timestamp that's similar um, so that we can compare essentially two week old webs with each other. Oh. So what we want to make sure is that we're um, measuring contaminants that collect over a somewhat standard period of time. Oh. So the okay. first thing that people do is actually find a web clear it and then come back, you know, a week later, or a day later, just to see. Um, and after like, you know, two weeks, collect that web that's been rebuilt. 
Oh, it's kind of a dirty trick. <laughs> it, it's, it is a or little spiders. bit. And so, like, hey, what's going on? You're like, spiders got to eat. I really actually love that response because um, it it is important. The web is important for the spider. And um, one of the things that I like about the project is that, you know, there are also ways to be a good neighbor to your spider. And especially if you're collecting, you know, outside your house or outside a place that you frequent, I really encourage people to observe, like, what does your spider eat? And can you give that spider an offering for their participation oh, in this project? And so <laughs> the, the web has an energetic cost. Mm -hmm. So you can pay that spider back. Um, so, uh, you know, to, to give that back. Although I will say also for those that can't uh, pay the spider or anything like that, that um, the, the cost, they're also used to rebuilding. That's mm -hmm. all right. Yeah, things are probably wandering into their webs all the time and wrecking them. And... That's right. Sticks happen. Yeah. <laughs> that is so cool. And so after you clear it, after it rebuilds it, and after a period of time has elapsed, how do you collect the web? Uh, first off, how do you collect the web yeah. and not the spider? And then how do you get it to you? <laughs> yeah, um, that part is actually very easy because... Um, they are more like hermits. So the reason why they build this funnel web is because um, spiders are delicious. <laughs> I haven't <laughs> eaten a spider. However, <laughs> this, I, I have not. I have not partaken. Um, however, birds think that they're delicious. Mm -hmm. And so spiders have a lot of predators. And so they, they have a ton of defensive mechanisms that are mostly... Um, run as fast as you can. And mm. so because of that speed that allows this particular spider to capture its prey, they use that in invasive measures all the time. So mm. they they will, um, even if they're out on their web when somebody approaches, they can definitely detect that you are not an insect and will, <laughs> will run immediately into their funnel. Okay. And so for the collection part, uh, we actually have um, people use paper straws like drinking straws mm -hmm. and uh, and collect the web and basically swirl it like cotton candy uh, to oh. take uh, the whole web. And we want to just leave the funnel intact, essentially. So allow the spider to still remain in its safe little hidey hole, mm -hmm. um, but take the, the kind of blanket um, part about the, um, the horizontal part of the web. Okay. Okay. And then what sorts of... Um contaminants or things are you are you looking for in the web yeah so a lot of things can collect on the web the thing that we're able to test in the lab are specifically metals and those are things that would happen through the combustion process of like car exhaust oh. um, so trace metals will come out in car exhaust in coal burning um, power plants like any sort of thing that goes through that combustion process will have um, metal contamination. Yeah, and why use webs versus, you know, other ways to monitor the air? Yeah, that's a really good question. There, there are so many ways to monitor air quality that are available right now. Um, but even ones that are labeled as low cost are, I think the cheapest ones are probably like $200. Mm. And so there's, uh, and require an internet connection in order to, um, to process. So there's, there's still some accessibility issues with the way that we monitor air. And so even though there's a lot of different ways and really 
in some cases, sophisticated tools. Um, the purpose of my project is to get, um, even if it's lower quality data, we're just getting this small timestamp because there's a really uneven distribution of where we collect air quality today. Mm-hmm. Being able to collect spider webs anywhere and everywhere is going to tell us so much information about relative contamination uh, because there are so many um, spots that are just um, kind of black holes of data where we just cannot see anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are also the places where people are reporting there they have the the biggest air quality issues. Huh. So there's a there's a direct gap where uh, we're essentially. Um, have the most monitors in places that have the best air quality. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then what are your plans? Is it, is it to have just a few people in a small area or in a really wide area or millions of people all over the world? Uh, how, how do you see this um, playing out? So I, I would love all of the above. Um, <laughs> but in particular, um, I, I think because of the uneven distribution of uh, air quality monitoring in the United States, I think there's particular use for it here. And um, I think that it can be scaled to um, kind of accommodate the issues of both. Um, one, uh, scale across the United States and for particular regions and neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. So I've been working on this project Um, for the past few years with a a few communities. And so we've been able to get a very fine, um, like um, neighborhood to neighborhood um, understanding of relative metal contamination um, that made sense uh, for local folks. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I think it can absolutely be used that way again and again. Um, And I would love to also see um, that comparison just made um, at, a, at a larger scale as well. So individuals can participate regardless of if they have air quality issues or not, because we really need to know the full gradient of um, the quality of our air that we really just don't see today because, like I said, that um, that kind of um, skewed mm-hmm. um, locations of our higher quality monitors. Mm-hmm. Great. Anything else you want to share or things that we've uh, missed or, or anything else you'd like to say about the project? Well, I said before that um, I've been working on the project for a couple years, but in a small scale. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is the first, um, this is our first ramp up to a, a larger audience. And so I, I'd love uh, feedback from people on their participation and, and note that it's in like this beta version of this large scale project. Great. All right. Well, thanks so much. This sounds really cool. I can't wait to tell people about it. Thanks so much, Bob. Well, that's it for this edition of the Sci Starter Podcast. You can find all three of the projects from this podcast, along with thousands more, at SciStarter.org. I'm Bob Hershon. Thanks for listening. This podcast is brought to you each month by SciStarter, where you'll find thousands of citizen science projects, events, and tools. It's all at SciStarter.org. That's S-C-I-S-T-A-R-T-E-R dot O-R-G. SciStarter's founder is Darlene Cavalier. And thanks so much to you, the listener and the citizen scientist, for getting involved and making a difference. If you have any ideas that you want to share with us and any things you want to hear on this podcast, get in touch with us at info at SciStarter.org. Once again, our email address is info at SciStarter.org. 
Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.